Hi, and welcome back. We are your hosts. I'm Hannah. And I'm Lexi. And you are listening to Wild About Conservation. If you're new here, welcome. This is the podcast where we explore the world of conservation through discussions with our very knowledgeable guests. And this season focuses on the coastal environment, from rivers through to estuaries and back out to our ocean. We have it all this season. In this episode, we chat with Matthew Anderson, who is the International Science Advisor the United States Geological Survey. We had a great conversation starting with why Matthew is interested in conservation, to exploring some real-world examples of how the agency advises those interested. We learned a lot chatting to Matthew today, particularly the importance of taking into account both the human and the wildlife side when it comes to responding to an ever-changing world. We spoke about some important ideas from traditional ecological knowledge to the importance of the global One Health approach. We do have a content warning for today's episode. We are discussing the impact of natural disasters in this episode, particularly that of Hurricane Sandy and how it affected the communities that were impacted. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. Please do remember to leave a review, get in touch on our social media, and if you would like to support us as creators, we do have a Patreon. Check out all of the links in the show notes or on our website. Enjoy. Hi, thank you for chatting to us today. So can you firstly introduce yourself to our listeners, your pronouns, who you are, what you do, and your key interest in conservation? It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm Matthew Anderson. I I use the male pronouns. Um, I'm uh, the senior scientist for biology in the Office of International Programs at the United States Geological Survey. That's an agency that's in the U.S. federal government. I'm in the Department of the Interior. I would say my primary interests, I think of my interests in conservation as two things. Uh, At a very personal level, I'm very interested in conservation because I love the outdoors. Um, I I get a lot of enjoyment out of being in nature, seeing the plants and animals and just all kinds of habitats that I've witnessed all over the world. Um, just really want to see those uh, maintained. They bring me a lot of a pleasure and, and solace. At a more altruistic level, I think conservation is just terribly important today, uh, very important for all of us to consider because it's about uh, maintaining humans on this planet. Uh, honestly, I think it's it's really critical today um, that we recognize that uh, conservation is about maintaining the ecosystem services on which we all depend. I think you put that wonderfully. There is always a, a personal reason for us to be involved in conservation, but you're right. There's that wider scope of view. And if we didn't care about the planet that we live on, we probably wouldn't be able to live as well as we do, but there's always improvements to be made. Before we get to know about the work that you do, we would like to play a game with you. So we have a <laughs> quick fire game that we ask our guests a couple of questions. It's not it's not too much. Um, it's just for us to get to know you a little bit better and to warm you up into the podcast. So firstly, if you could live in any habitat, which would it be? Um, I really like cold weather. Um, so I, I, some, something uh, far north or far south. Um, I had a chance to, to uh, be on a very far southern island in New Zealand a couple of years ago um, that's like stepping back millions of years. Um, Olva Island is off the the south of the South Island. 
on, off of Stewart Island. It's a, it's a really remote place. And the uh, the vegetation and the and the birds are just prehistoric, uh, really really spectacularly beautiful. Um, I've also uh, visited uh, Svalbard uh, islands that are Norwegian possessions with a with a little tiny Russian inholding, um, and that's just really gorgeous up there. Um, so something that has at least at least some at least four seasons and and preferably heavy on the on the cold part is is. Uh, is what I really, I like. That sounds amazing. I'm not a very, um, let's say, cold weather happy person, but you may, you may change my mind with this podcast. Um, I know, I know how to, I know how to live in hot habitats. I've done it a lot and I, I do it a lot and, and those are beautiful too, but uh, my first choice is the cold weather. Fair enough. Um, would you rather be a dung beetle, a mayfly or a cockroach? <laughs> oh, that's easy. Mayfly. Could you tell us why? Oh, because mayflies get to live in in beautiful freshwater habitats and and fly around in the the sunshine amongst the other bugs and leaves. So that would be that would be a beautiful existence. It would be being around. I I love rivers and streams. So that would be that would be a wonderful place to live. And finally, can you tell us one thing that you love that has absolutely nothing to do with conservation? Or very little to do with conservation, because we argue that everything comes back to conservation. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, guess I'll have to say music. I really enjoy uh, listening to music, playing music, writing music. So really enjoy that. I've just spotted the guitar that is sitting and that's, behind and that's, me. And that's, what, and that's what the guitars in the background are all about. <laughs> I think I kind of already have an idea of what you're going to say, but then your answers then were so comprehensive of where you'd like to live so maybe I don't know what you're about to say but every single episode Matthew we ask our guests how they actually get wild about conservation being the name of our podcast so how do you get wild? Trying to be out in diverse habitats whenever possible Um, this is uh, my my wife and I really enjoy eco-tourism vacations where we're out and about doing doing some walking and um, I, I try to I try to be on as many different kinds of vessels as possible um, so I've just been on on all kinds of boats all over the world and that's that's always a, a fun a fun thing to add to my list is which kind of which kind of vessel was I on on this trip um, so that I, I would say that's my my biggest focus is to, is to be able to get out um, here I, I live in northern Virginia so it's really a, a great place to be able to Rush up to the to the mountains for a day and do a little bit of skiing when when that's in season, or to rush down to the seashore and get to enjoy the the beautiful Atlantic coast and the uh, habitats and, and animals that are there. Um, so really, uh, a, even if it's a, a half a day or a day, um, that's that's a, a good trip. But a, but an even better trip is when getting getting some overnights, um, getting to be outside and, and out in wild habitats overnight. That's that's great fun. Um, something that I've done a couple of times that I've really enjoyed is taking the the boat trip, the, the motorboat trip from um, Phnom Penh, Cambodia to uh, Chao Dok, uh, Vietnam, uh, down the Mekong River. That's a that's a really uh, interesting and evolving trip. It's uh, it's changing rapidly just in the last few years. Um, so that's a really great way to to be on the brown water. I I, I like the brown water. It's fun. My God, my need for travel and my wanderlust is just hitting new levels at the moment. Um, I was, I had, I had a bad day yesterday. I was, I needed to get out so bad. The pandemic's been very, very challenging. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually uh, saw like the most beautiful like vista of coastline yesterday because I haven't seen it in months. So we should say to our listeners, even though this episode is airing kind of towards the end of the year, that this was recorded earlier on during the uh, pandemic area of 2021 and probably still ongoing. But yeah, just getting out and about and every trip I go on, it's always like, I need a boat trip in there somewhere. If I'm away somewhere, I always want to seek out those boats. <laughs> and if you can't get on a boat, get in the sea. Yes, even if it's cold, Lex. Not so much if it's cold. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the main topic of conversation, Matthew. You, could you tell us um, what primarily got you into conservation? Uh I think I mentioned them at the top that what uh, really that what drives me is a, a, a personal need and a personal enjoyment of, of uh, the, the natural world. Um, but then as I moved into adult life and thought about what I wanted to do for a career, I realized that um, conservation is terribly important for everyone, for me, for my family, for my neighbors, for my country, for the world. Um, it's it's really a, a life's calling for me um, to want to be sure that we have uh, functioning ecosystems going into the future, and that uh, is is just becoming more important every day. Uh, more and more pressures on our environment. Uh, we've we've got to really uh, increase the amount of energy that we put into conserving our our natural habitats and functioning ecosystems. So I'm very happy to be doing it for a, a profession. Um, if I if I wasn't doing this every week, um, it would be really frustrating to me. I want to be engaged in this however I can. Yeah, I, I love that. And also you've got me kind of getting super excited about ecosystem function and ecosystem services because that is where all of my research and my work lies. So could you just define that a little bit for us, Matthew? What What is a functioning ecosystem and what are the services that we gain from those kind of ecosystems? As an aquatic ecologist, the, the ecosystem services that typically occur to me first are those that are provided by freshwater habitats and, and uh, marshes and swamps, the, the wetlands of the world. Um, of course, uh, water is fundamental. Uh, we've got to have uh, fresh water for life um, and, and the rest of the life of, of the creatures and, and uh, organisms on the planet depend on, on fresh water. Um, so maintaining that is so terribly important. Um, then that starts in headwater streams around the world um, that we are keeping uh, where where the uh, snow falls, where rain falls, where streams emerge, keeping those uh, habitats clean and free of pollution. Um, and then being able to uh, uh, filter out some of the pollutants that, that naturally occur along the way um, in, in downstream wetlands before they reach the sea is another important function of an ecosystem. Um, so having um, controlled the, the amount of pollution that we're contributing to systems, um, keeping uh, natural systems functioning in natural ways uh, is, is terribly important for life on Earth. Um, and so that's that's kind of the first example that occurs to me. Um, I think we're, I, I was thinking about our pod, the podcast a little bit today. You know, it occurs to me where we've, uh, we've really disrupted the natural world with uh, and it, and it's it, the, the the natural world is fighting back with this pandemic. Um, these uh, viruses that that live in uh, remote uh, have remote uh, uh, 
wildlife populations and remote habitats um, are, are released by human activities. Um, Ebola was one that, that uh, was released a few years ago by lots and lots of um, encroachment on the natural world. Um, and then, of course, the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic is, is another, the, the current example that we are still in the midst of. Um, so what's a, a natural function for the natural world becomes um, an emergency for human populations when it's, it, it spreads so quickly. Um, and, we, and we come up against something that our immune system is not familiar with. It, it reminds me of the, the, uh, how terribly unique the, the natural world is. I mean, that, that bats can live with this organism and not be killed, but it, it's an organism that can pass to us and it does kill us. Um, a, a zoonosis, right? A disease that moves from wildlife into human populations um, is, is, a, is a disturbance of the natural world, is, is uh, those ecosystem functions being broken down and, and uh, we're, we're living through it now. It's, it's, it's quite serious. Yeah, I think it's really important to highlight actually that the pandemic is going to bring out so much in terms of these conversations and the research that's going to go into backfilling what this past year plus is going to look like because we were chatting before about the fact that there has been less traffic there is less vessels out there there is less aircraft movement like not only is it bringing to the fore the problems with human wildlife interactions and how we need to mitigate ourselves for those but also it will highlight the actual impact that we've had because we've not ever been able to put the world on pause for a big experiment Whereas I think the scientific world will be using this to their advantage, which is going to be really interesting. Um, it's it's very much a it's very much a, a, a mixed. There, there, there's a pros and cons to that. Um, it's it's really exciting to me what what I see in my neighborhood because I'm out walking in it every day now. Um, this is how much the wildlife are enjoying this. Um, the, the woodpeckers are going crazy in the trees. The, the foxes and the deer are running around the neighborhood freely like there are pets. Um, the, 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 the reduction in traffic in them and human beings is, is really having positive effects at very local levels and also for um, reducing pollution, air pollution, those kinds of things. What it, uh, perhaps an unexpected impact, though, is that it is making it more and more difficult for people to live in cities. And in many developing countries around the world, this is driving people back into the natural world where they are having more and more impacts on the natural world, um, where we're uh, wood cutting, where we're uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, agrarian, uh, or, or I should say artisanal farming and artisanal mining might have slowed down. All of those things are picking up as people have, have to have livelihoods. Um, so it's, it's a very uh, disruptive thing that's having some expected and some unexpected consequences. Absolutely. And I think we've come to the conversation frequently and it is nice to be able to talk about it on a podcast because it allows for that nuance where we do accept that there will be positives and it will be excellent to look at and for those. But there are also negatives in a completely different sphere and we need to hold those things in balance because everything is interconnected. So I think you make an excellent point to call out the fact that it is impacting people's livelihoods and it is driving people more towards the natural world. Right, 
back onto what I was going to ask because I've completely. <laughs> I've got goosebumps, honestly, just, just because it's so true. And yeah, I my like every time you were saying about the different things, it, it, everything rings so loudly of exactly that that people are kind of slowing down the pace of life a bit, but don't necessarily know how to do that in a sustainable way in terms of our natural environment because people haven't had such a connection to nature as maybe what's happened in the past year. So I think there's that little bit of education that's still kind of people maybe are looking out for of functioning with our natural environment as people move out of these big cities. Because, yeah, there's definitely been in the UK kind of a bit of an exodus out of London, Manchester places, people moving more to the countryside where it's less populated and just connecting, which is also is always really good. But it's remembering to kind of leave only footprints, as it were. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's just very the, the the planet was on a certain direction, and we suddenly stopped hit a wall, right, <laughs> and and just went in a very unexpected direction. So so cities are are you know, have have their own negative impacts on the environment, of course. Um, and I think it's I want to say it's about forty percent or more of the world's population lives within a hundred kilometers of the sea. Um, so the impacts that 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 population has on coastal processes and on coastal pollution and, and ocean pollution is huge. Um, so not, cities aren't necessarily the answer, um, but learning how to, to do that in a, a smart and sustainable way um, is something that we need definitely need to work on. But there's a there's a lot of people. I mean, it, it comes down to it, there's a lot of people and, and all organisms impact their environment, even, even bivalves, right? Have, have some impact on their environment. Um, humans, of course, are the, the most impactful organism out there. So when we're demanding energy, when we're demanding water, when we're demanding food, uh, that's that's hard on the planet when there's so many of us and and growing. But hopefully there's enough people out there that are wanting to do the best in terms of balancing that we'll see more and more solutions emerging like more natural um solutions to some of the problems that we've caused over the past amount of time. I don't. I don't think we. I don't think we have any option. I think we have no. to. Yeah. I, I think. I think the the uh, the nations of the world, the the, uh, the leaders of the world, have to start facing it. Yep. Uh, the climate change is happening. <laughs> All these people are having an impact. We've we've got to come up with solutions and and in short order um, to to be able to sustain ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before we continue because I'm adoring this conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about your academic career? So when you start, what did you do when you started university and what has your career looked like up until this point? Um, so I've, I've got, been on a long and winding road, just, just like Paul McCartney. Um, I start when uh, I left uh, high school, uh, I thought I'd be a music major. And so I went to, to a school for a year as a, as a music major, um, recognized that even if I was wonderful, which I'm not, um, it, w- it would be hard to, uh, to, to count on a, that, that being a career. Um, and so thought back on what was the, the topics that, that I really liked and re- re- realized that uh, biology was the thing that was most exciting about high school after, after the music classes. Um, so started to work in uh, biology and, and take classes in it. Um, I thought for a while I would be a, a veterinarian and uh, finished finished my uh, bachelor's degree, and actually went to, to veterinary school for one year. Um, that was uh, very uh, expensive 
for me, and I needed to uh, to withdraw from that. Um, especially in, in uh, the United States, that can be an extremely expensive education. And uh, re- realized how much I liked the, the natural world, and so pursued a more of a, a wildlife and ecology kind of uh, master's degree. Um, did so. My bachelor's is from uh, California, Sonoma State University of Cal- in, uh, in Northern California. And my master's is from the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, where I got really interested in desert fish, um, a really interesting, odd group of organisms um, that uh, occur in some pretty spectacular habitats in the, the desert southwest and uh, the northwest of Mexico. And uh, after that, uh, started working in, in uh, consulting, um, realized that consulting wasn't exactly for me and started working in government and found that government is really where my, my niche is. So all those, those diverse uh, experiences of different kinds of schooling and going to school in different parts of the country um, but, uh, has, has been, been a, a strong background for me. Um, I, I really have appreciated the diversity in my life experiences and work experiences to, uh, to be able to employ that today. I love that journey from kind of, yeah, the music, the veterinary, the natural sciences, because that also, I think that picks up on how many conservationists are, whether or not they're great at it or not, super crafty and quite like, there is that artsy side that can be a really great way to um, communicate conservation and science through music, through art. And those collaborations, I always think are really, really interesting. Um, so you mentioned that you got really interested in the desert fish. Um, we know if we had to give you probably one of your many, many titles, um, ichthyologist would be one of them. Could you tell us what an ichthyologist is other than a really hard word to spell? <laughs> <laughs> sure. You, yeah, you have to know a little Greek. Uh, <laughs> ichthus is, is uh, the Greek word for fish. So someone who loves fish is an ichthyologist. That's the, the, the root of it. Always comes back and, to uh, Greek. This is what I'm learning. Yep. It does. <laughs> we mention Greek a lot. <laughs> Maybe we should just go away. One of, one, of, Greek. one of my favorite books in my undergraduate school was uh, the, the uh, I think it was called um, Greek and Latin Word Roots. And it was a very thin little volume, just a little tiny book. And it was so important for an education in the sciences to be able to say, I-C-H-T-U, what, where did that come from? And to be able to go and look that up and see, oh, that's the Greek word for fish. Then now I get it. That's the, that's someone who loves fish is an ichthyologist. I, so those, those uh, Greek and Latin roots are terribly important, especially, especially important for uh, anatomy and physiology. You gotta, gotta know your Greek and Latin roots. And then it all just is obvious. It just clicks. I think that that book's amazing and I've just written it down because it will go on our show notes <laughs> and in the description. But I have a fascination with language and the way that that's formed and the way it all fits together. But I kind of cheated at university because I grew up in Spain. <laughs> so I know Spanish, yep. oh. which is very, oh, very similar to Latin. So a lot of the words I was like, oh, this is obviously this. Um, si, claro. So, yeah. <laughs> Era muy bien para mí. Right, we're not going to do that. No, no, stop. (laughs) Back to you. Um, So, aquatic ecology, ichthyology, what type of fish do you study? 
Well, the short answer is I don't study anything anymore. I'm an office and meetings guy. So the the, the later in my career I've gotten, the more I, I attend meetings and write documents and prepare budgets and th those sorts of things, which actually are, I find terribly interesting because it's the big picture stuff. Um, but where I started with my studies was uh, especially in the Western United States, um, studying uh, very large and very small fish in very large and very small habitats. And, and, and there's very little in between. Um, the animal that I wrote my master's thesis about is a critter called the devil's hole pupfish. This is a fish that when it's fully grown is probably, what is that? 10 centimeters long, maybe. Um, and, and that's, and that's, that's a big, that's a big monster devil pupfish. <laughs> and it lives in a really, uh, forbidding, strange uh, habitat in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Um, I really encourage you and your listeners to go look up the Devil's Hole. Um, today, it's part of a, uh, of a national park. It's part of uh, Death Valley National Monument, but it's a little small piece that's disjunct from, from the main uh, Death Valley. Um, it's a really deep hole in, in the rock um, that connects to a, uh, an underground large aquifer uh, body of water, uh, which has never been fully explored. It's such a large uh, body of water that nobody's ever been able to dive all the way to the bottom of it and find out just how extensive it is. But these fish have carved out life in the, in the top little, little bit of it that is exposed to sunlight where uh, there is a little bit of a primary production that allows them to exist. So that, that's the example of the, the very tiny animal and the very tiny habitat that I found so interesting. Um, and then in the big rivers of the West, um, we have some huge animals. Um, perhaps the most uh, dramatic there is the uh, uh, what's called the Colorado pike minnow. This is an animal that's in the, the minnow family, um, just like carp and goldfish are in the, the minnow family. Um, but it, it uh, historically anyway, and we have, and we have photographs of this, um, was a fish that got to be two meters long. So it, it lived in this huge uh, rushing river in the west of the Colorado River and its tributaries um, and, and evolved to be just this massive animal. Um, so the, the conservation of, of all of, of those unique animals and those unique habitats is what I thought was so exciting uh, early in my career. And pretty quickly, I moved from kind of the study of the ecology of those individual animals um, into government um, to try to protect those. And so a lot of my efforts in, in my professional life have been about uh, bringing people from diverse uh, walks of life together to, to form committees and programs to help protect these, these unique fish. And what is so important about protecting these animals, uh, if, if you're not a fish lover perhaps, um, is just simply that they are the sources of fresh water in the Western United States where we have tremendous uh, drought and tremendous water shortages these days. So if you, if you have healthy fish populations, you have healthy water systems and therefore you have uh, water that can sustain people and, and, uh, and their needs. So would you maybe say that these fish are kind of, I guess one of the phrases that catch use a lot is like an indicator. So they indicate that, yeah, there's a healthy water system there. 
that means human populations would be safe to settle there because you're seeing these these fish that need so much to form a healthy population. Um, but also, I'm just thinking on that kind of they can be the indicator of a healthy ecosystem. But why are these fish so important in general to the ecosystem? Kind of is their roles that they serve? Do they eat? What do they eat? <laughs> do they control control pests? Is there all sorts of other things that they do? Um, in because these habitats are limited and and biologically simple, um, they are often the the top predator in the in their little systems. Um, so the, the those very small fish that I've mentioned um, may be just one of three or four organisms that are found in that habitat at all, and they're the they're the king of the mountain. They're they're the the top predator in that habitat. The uh, the two meter long pike minnow that I was talking about from the Colorado River was the top predator. Um, so with all of the uh, the smaller fish that that it fed on, um, maintained by the the primary productivity, the the, the plants and algae, so the, the, the bacteria that grow in that environment, um, the the existence of this great big minnow was an indicator that all of those lower levels in the food web were functioning and, and healthy. So it's not, they are, um, they don't have a lot of uh, function themselves. They are an indicator of a, the functioning system underneath them, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, which is really important because the second that the health of an environment starts to deteriorate, you will notice that it affects the top predators because it just moves through the food chain, which is so interesting when we have to kind of pick apart these food webs to understand how things are being impacted and where the problem lies. Now we know a lot of that is pollution and human impacts, but getting to figure out what the actual problem is, is really, it's really, it's a really interesting part of science. Tigers is another example, right? Mm. I mean, we, you know, tigers need, Big habitats, a big functioning ecosystem, a big, big web. Um, polar bears are another example. These big, um, what we uh, ichthyologists call the uh, the charismatic megafauna. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those 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 animals that that sell people on uh, sending in their contributions to the World Wildlife Fund because they're so beautiful. Um, but they don't necessarily have lots of direct impacts on the environment, but they are indicators that so many other organisms in the food web are healthy, that, that they're able to be maintained. Yeah. And, and, the, and the system itself, in the case of polar bears, but the physical habit, the physical habitat too. Yeah, the physical habitat. I think that's a big one with tigers is, and then you can think about that in the case of other habitats, is the connectivity. If if your habitat is shrinking because of, say, tigers, deforestation, but polar bears, ice, is... but yeah, fragmenting would be where we'd bring in that phrase is they will be an indicator of that because they need that habitat and that in itself is a direct impact of some human activity is that fragmentation. So I think that's real interesting and some real great parallels that you're drawing there to demonstrate where these fish sit because sometimes people just think, oh, but it's a fish. (laughs) And it's not. Fish are just as important. They just have slightly different functions in a much smaller way than maybe we first think of. I think we're very biased though because we started the first two seasons of a podcast on <laughs> aquatic I mean, habitat. I'm a marine ecologist. <laughs> we want to get the word out there that the water world is awesome if unexplored entirely. So yeah. 
So talking about projects and exciting things, Matthew, you've obviously done a lot throughout your life. And yes, you may be on the higher levels and more meeting side now, but that doesn't mean that you're not contributing in a very different way, which is what I say about my volunteer coordination. I do all the paperwork to make sure everything else can happen. Um, But what are some of the most exciting projects personally that you've been involved in? Let's see. I I think I'll mention one from uh, my time in Utah. Um, I worked for the state of Utah uh, government. I was with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, and we recognized that there was a really unique uh, fish to that habitat. It's called the June sucker, um, a a fish in the the sucker family or catastomidae um, that was uh, declining rapidly. And this was an animal that that, uh, Native Indians just 150 years ago, Native Americans, were able to harvest by the ton to help feed their, their populations, uh, but it had gone into to dramatic decline. And so um, there were lots of efforts to, it can kind of a fragmented way to try to, to conserve that population. Um, I was tasked with being the representative for my agency to start up a program to conserve those fish. And uh, but I, I think that program was, was quite successful in bringing together a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life um, to try to to come together on that common goal of, of recognizing everybody's uh, needs and interests, but also trying to conserve that species. Um, it's had uh, some success. There, there are some things that are difficult to overcome um, in our modern life with lots of industrialization and urbanization in the area. Um, it's not easy to maintain this very unique uh, functioning habitat in north central Utah. Um, but it has had some some success in trying to conserve that species. So that's that uh, getting together with uh, a lot of diverse people to try to conserve animals has been a really exciting thing for me. Um, I was also I, I didn't help form this. I stepped into a similar kind of conservation program um, in the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon, um, something called Glen Canyon Dam Adaptive Management Program. Um, Brings to the, our stakeholder group uh, in that program was, was 25 representatives. So just imagine uh, a group of uh, Native Americans, uh, water and power interests, federal agencies, state agencies, sportsmen, uh, people that like to go river rafting, all trying to agree. <laughs> and of course, uh, the agreement was was rarely reached, but we could often get to consensus, <laughs> just just where people could live with the, the decisions. Um, so that was a very exciting thing to be involved in, um, and and I'm my, my bias there was was to try to conserve the natural habitat as much as possible and the natural fish that occur there. Some really unique fish species occur in that habitat. Um, and then I have a very exciting project going on currently. I'm working in the Mekong River, uh, the Lower Mekong River in Southeast Asia, and uh, have a, a great group of colleagues from my agency USGS and uh, also from Arizona State University and some then some agencies in, um, some universities, I should say, in Vietnam and in Cambodia that are all working together on uh, trying to have a better understanding of the interaction of different kinds of resources. And we include in that um, biological resources, physical resources, and the social resources. Um, all, all of this ultimately has to do with, with protecting people and their livelihoods um, so that they can they can sustain that habitat and, and be able to pass that on to their children. 
Um, that's what the department, the uh, Department of State in the United States, uh, supports that project. So that's that's a very exciting program I'm involved in now. Have been for a couple of years now, and it looks like it's going to be continuing at least for one more year and probably for a few more years. So those those are that, that um, being able to gather people of different interests and backgrounds, and everybody's got their their goals, their agenda um, to try to make those things work in concert for conservation has been the, the most exciting part of my professional life. I think what you've just summarized there, Matthew, is amazing because it's so true. You've just said it so well, what we touched on at the start of there's all of these resources and all of these people that have a stake and have a bit of their life that comes into that kind of conservation process and reliancy on the environment around them, whether they immediately think about it or not. And getting those people's thoughts and having them involved in the process of conservation is so important because that's kind of how things change. I mean, look at it for us in the UK, some of the legislation we've had has because people start to realize what's happening to the world around them and they've been involved with these changes in process. So I think that's super exciting. And also you've led us on quite well because that kind of human animal interaction is exactly, as you said, where your work lies. And as an kind of international science advisor that we know you are, you are bringing all those different people of different walks of life and considering their views to help other people do the active conservation on the ground. So you kind of summarized it, but could you summarize what is an international science advisor? What, what do you, what are you, <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> um, I have two jobs in a, in a, at the basic level. Um, I am responsible for helping USGS scientists who want to work overseas do their work overseas. So I'm, I'm an advisor to them in that sense. Um, and secondly, I'm out looking for ways that we can be useful. Um, in the United States, my agency, USGS, is, is strictly a science advisor agency. We conduct science that, that people need, that our government needs, and, and provide that advice. But we are not the decision makers. Um, we don't have regulatory responsibility. We don't enforce laws. We don't write rules, that sort of thing. Um, we're just trying to focus on science that's immediately applicable and, and provide that. And that's the same thing we do overseas. So I look for places where uh, our science could be helpful and where we could help provide some uh, science answers, uh, some science advice, um, but then turn that decision-making and, and actually set up the decision-making processes to, to do that in some cases as we are in the Mekong um, and then provide the science that, that helps support that and then step back, recognize that politicians need to consider what's true. They need to consider how the ecosystem functions and what all the, the, the pieces of that are in the environment. Um, but then they also have a lot of other considerations, um, what, what their constituencies will want or demand, um, what are the things that they need to do to be sure that the people are considered, um, what are the laws that, that exist, could those laws be changed if necessary, um, so recognize that decision makers have a lot of factors that they have to take into consideration. Uh, we try to provide the, the uh, biophysical science and the social science um, that supports that um, and then turn that over to those decision makers for, uh, for their use. And um, always when I'm working overseas, I always have to be able to show how that work is, is applicable back home uh, because I work for the American government. 
we're not a consulting agency. Um, I have to show how what I do is you know, what my scientists are doing is useful for the people of the United States. Um, that's never a problem. <laughs> it's always very easy to show how when people are working overseas, they're learning and, and bringing that back. And that just that's what uh, a world-class scientist is, is somebody who has that perspective of having worked in a different environment with different people and, and be able to, to bring that perspective home to say, I've, here's, here's what I've learned from that. Here's how we're the same. Here's how we're different. Um, those, those comparisons are really important. Uh, for example, working in the Mekong is, is really applicable to the studies that we do in the Mississippi River. Um, there's looking at how those uh, rivers are the same, how they're different, how their constituencies are the same, and how they're different, how those different uh, habitats behave. Um, we have some of the same problems. Um, we have different problems. Um, but being able to do that comparison really helps the, the person expand their, uh, their mind, expand their experience, um, to have a, a a more applicable uh, experience, a more applicable application, I think. Yeah, I just want to say, firstly, thank you so much for making that distinction as to what the USGS does in terms of the advisory role, because I think that's really important to highlight that and make that distinction between decision-making and advising. Um, and secondly, just what you said there of drawing those parallels and even those differences is so useful. It's exactly what you've just done on this podcast for us with the the fish to the to the charismatic megafauna as we call them and it is that way of making people understand that they should care it's relating it back to the individual because that's what i find in public engagement if you can't if you talk about problems or you talk about solutions and you just use it in this wider context then it there is a level of well if it doesn't impact me why so you, you've done it absolutely beautifully. Um, so thank you so much for that. But you don't just work for, like in the sense of environmental problems or looking for envi environmental solutions. Is, am I right in saying that you also have a part to play in environmental emergencies? Perhaps the, the most uh, obvious example, I would say, is, is the pandemic that we're living through now. Um, to my mind, this is very much an environmental emergency. And I think especially for uh, people who live in urban areas and who haven't traveled a lot, this may not be quite so obvious, um, but I think this is very much about how he, the human population is just spreading out more and more <laughs> every day. And we come in contact with the, the natural world and, and kind of remote parts of the natural world more every day. And then of course we're traveling and I'm, and I'm guilty of this because I love travel and I have done a lot of it and I do it for my work when I, when I can. Um, but that traveling, that, that interconnectedness of the of the human uh, population, um, is why this uh, is is such a pressing environmental emergency. There's an aspect of my agency that is uh, actively engaged in wildlife uh, health and wildlife medicine, and and also wildlife ecology. We have some skills that we would we're, we'd like to be able to apply. At the moment, we're just doing some advising to our State Department, and we also advise the OIE. This is the um, wildlife equivalent of the of WHO. It's the wildlife equivalent of the the it's the, the International Wildlife Health Agency. Um, they're based in Paris, so OIE is a, is a French abbreviation. Um, giving them some advice on considering that that uh, you you need to consider the the wild 
and uh, natural world components of global one health. Have you heard of global one health approach before? Is it? No, I've not heard too much about that. So go ahead if you want to give us some definitions as well for our listeners. Um, the, the global one health approach recognizes that people and domesticated animals and wildlife animals are very much interconnected. And this only becomes more true every day. Um, the, uh, we're, we're living through an example of this where a zoonoses, um, a, a disease that move, that is in animals that moves to people, um, gets out of control mm. and, and causes a, a lot of harm and, and uh, morbidity and mortality. Um, if, if we, we, yes, we need to consider human health. And of course that's where the big money is and where there's lots of attention and, uh, Human medicine, uh, public health systems are all really focused on that. But we know that there are some really important diseases that are also found in humans, domestic animals. Um, and there are diseases that move back and forth. Uh, perhaps one of the most uh, familiar examples of that is avian influenza, um, AI, or sometimes just called bird flu. All, all, all of those mean the same thing. Um, that's a really fascinating and, and potentially dangerous disease. Uh, because it moves between uh, wild birds and domestic birds and domestic swine and people, and in the, and in that move that virus moving back and forth, it has the the uh, it, it, it resorts. It has uh, you, you may have heard the reference to the H and N numbers of those viruses, and when those H and N pieces of the genome are are resorting, and different numbers of those are resorting. That's, that's why sometimes the, the flu vaccine is effective and sometimes it's not because we have to predict which of those uh, H&N versions are going to be most, uh, most prevalent and most dangerous in a given year. Um, and then the, the Ebola viruses and the coronavirus that we're suffering through now are examples of where that disease has moved from wildlife into to, uh, human populations. So a, a global One Health approach um, encourages the people who are responsible for human health, um, domestic animal health, and wildlife animal health to work together. And in USGS, we also advise that considering the, the natural world, the, the habitat where the wildlife is found is also a very important part of this global One Health approach. Um, uh, actually, we've been advising the State Department, along with many other agencies in American government, um, to for the upcoming G7 that'll be held in Edinburgh, right? I think the G7 is Cornwall, if I remember correctly. Is it, uh, pardon me. Pardon the me, convening Jesus. of yeah. parties for the 26th convening of parties for the climate conference is in Glasgow at the end of this year. That's right. That's what I'm thinking of. So the, so the upcoming G7, uh, we are giving some advice to State Department along with a bunch of other U.S. agencies um, on how to uh, think about what what the G7 nations um, as, as global leaders should be thinking about when considering how to protect all of the aspects of, of health that, that affect uh, people and the animals around us. That's really interesting because I think that brings another facet to what we spoke about earlier with the kind of expanding of people interacting more with their natural environment in terms of moving out of cities, but I hadn't really even considered as well, even though I'm so aware of it in the marine environment, of if you're moving your pets out of cities and your domestic animals out of cities that you are potentially impacting the native animal populations which i guess in the uk one of 
the biggest ones we have is some of the diseases that can be passed from wild animals to livestock and how much of a concern that is within British um, kind of agriculture and farming. So yeah, that's that's really interesting because I hadn't thought too much about that. And yeah, that, as you said, constitutes an environmental emergency in itself. And then what are some of the other environmental, well, I guess, have we fully defined just maybe in one statement what an environmental emergency is? Uh, you're making me think of a couple of things. Um, <laughs> I have to have to pick my order. Um, an, an environmental emergency, I, I think, is is similar to a natural disaster, and I think that um, we have we, we need to put that into perspective. So, as as far as nature is concerned, this is just new business, right? This is just the the, the turning of the geological clock. This is just time marching on, natural processes occurring, when they have a, a negative impact on human populations, now it's a natural disaster. <laughs> now it's an environmental emergency, right? So um, I, for, I, I think Ebola might be an interesting example to think about. Uh, I think for, unfortunately, way too many Americans, Ebola was just something that happened over there. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was on another continent across the, the sea, Oh yes, let's let's send a little bit of assistance to there, uh, but that's not really something we need to worry about. Of course, when a couple of people showed up in the United States with Ebola, now it's an environmental emergency. <laughs> now, now it's a problem. Um, when we uh, build, as as we do in the United States, more and more out onto the edge of the ocean, um, especially on the east coast of the United States and on the Gulf Coast of the United States, we put more and more populations, often second homes, uh, vacation homes, uh, farther and farther out. But there's also people who just live there year round. Um, and then a hurricane comes in, the, these these strange uh, uh, North American storms, and homes are wiped out. Now it's an environmental emergency. Now it's a natural disaster. <laughs> and and the government needs to rush in and, and help me. Um, so it's it's where that where the, the natural world is marching along and, and human, humans come into conflict with that. Um, an earthquake or a volcano is a, is a natural disaster, is an environmental emergency. Um, but of course, uh, we're, we're driving so much of that. Um, we Increasingly, um, the environmental emergencies, the natural disasters are not just the planet turning <laughs> and, and Earth spinning out in space and doing its thing, uh, but it's also things that we have had negative impacts on. Um, so if our putting lots and lots of carbon into the into the air um, is causing the planet to warm up, and I argue that it is, um, then the occurrence of more storms, of more fierce storms, of the erosion of our coastal areas so that people are in danger, um, we're, we're engaging in those environmental disasters, right? We're engaging in those environmental emergencies in a very uh, tangible way, and we really you would hope that that would make us start to think about what we're doing and maybe pause and retract a little bit and think about some different approaches. I think increasingly uh, people and governments are starting to think about that, perhaps not fast enough. So. Yeah, I think that was perfect because I think what you've done there is you've really made that connection, which I think can be a bit alien of people hear the word climate change, the earth is warming, but also there's more storms how they connect for some people is maybe not quite clear. 
when you work in climate and you work and think about those things, it, it even then it can take you wrapping your head around a little bit when you first start out. But it is understanding that the things that we do have such a bigger impact. And a lot of those impacts we are seeing now from stuff that has already happened. So yeah, I think that was a fantastic uh, explanation. Um, and then kind of from there, you've spoken about the hurricanes. So you were part of the team that kind of responded to the impact of, was it Hurricane Sandy? And True. I guess a question is, what was that like being part of that team? But Because for us in the UK, we don't have hurricanes, but we are more frequently now getting bigger storms, exactly as we're talking about. But it isn't just the human side of it. As you said, it becomes an emergency and everything when there is human impact, but there is the environmental side of it that is so key to your work of like, how do you measure that impact? What is the response of the impact when you're trying to maybe salvage some of those ecosystems and get them back on track after a hurricane's come through? I don't know that we've done a good job of getting back on track. I think there's still some, some really important concerns there. Um, what my agency has been able to show um, and, and along with other American agencies too, I would say, especially the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, is to measure how how much our um, uh, changes to the environment in advance of the storm uh, made us more vulnerable to the storm. And then with the passing of such a massive, massive storm, um, how we are at greater risk today. This uh, Sandy was an incredible hurricane. It, um, it actually was three storms that came together. Um, this is just like the, uh, uh, if you know, Sebastian Unger's perfect storm, that, that story um, was a, a fictional uh, coming together of three low pressure systems that made one storm. But Sandy was, was a perfect storm in real life. That, that low pressure system rolled up the east coast of the United States, and it was so large that it drew in two more low pressure systems so when that came ashore in the United States, it, it was a storm that was 1,000 miles wide. This is really unprecedented. <laughs> it was just huge. So from the from North Carolina, from the, from the Carolinas, especially North Carolina in the United States, all the way up to Massachusetts in the United States, one storm came ashore at the same time, and it only, and it had Im impacts as far west as the Great Lakes. So it, it rolled across the nation and rolled over the Appalachian mountain range and ended up having weather impacts on the Great Lakes a few days later. Just an unprecedented kind of storm. Um, what is the, the impacts that are most obvious to measure are the changes to um, how much uh, sand and, and dry land and wetlands are now on the coast versus beforehand. So my agency measures those things a lot and we have the, the pre and the post picture um, to be able to show how those uh, storms have, have really dramatic impacts on the coast and how if that storm comes ashore today, um, the impacts will be greater. And how we really need to think about whether we want to have lots of human populations in, in its path and, or, or do we want to make some changes. Um, do we want to have big um, energy generation stations? Do we want to have coal-fired power plants and nuclear power plants that are that close to the coast, or do those need to go someplace else? Um, are we going to allow people to build multi-million dollar vacation homes on the coast and then reimburse them when the storm takes them down? 
Um, or are we going to say, if you, if you build, you're on your own. Uh, you have to be responsible for yourself. Now, I, I should uh, be quick to, quick to say there's a lot of people who just live near the coast. Um, in the case of Hurricane Sandy, uh, the people that live on Long Island, New York, um, and the people that live in New York itself and in New Jersey were the most uh, uh, dramatically damaged by it. And those, those are just where those populations occur. Those aren't vacation homes. Those, those are people's full-time homes. Um, so some really terrible, um, destructive uh, impacts from the storm there. And it came uh, almost at uh, uh, Halloween. It was very late in the hurricane season. And so it was cold. Um, hurricanes are typically a, a very, they're, they're driven by warm water in the North Atlantic and typically come ashore when the temperatures are really hot. Um, but in this case, it was uh, late in the season. And those people had a terrible winter um, with uh, cold temperatures and snow um, while they're still trying to put their homes back together and deal with coastal flooding. Uh, it's a very, very uh, difficult storm to deal with. And we will probably see another one. So we're, we're living through those changes now. I, when I was a kid, um, there's a, speaking of North American storms, we have tornadoes. And I don't, I don't think tornadoes really occur on any other continent except North America because of the unique way that this, this continent is set up. Um, those storms used to occur in a very uh, north-south direction. They, they would uh, typically bubble up in the south and, and move north. And that center of the continent or sort of the like the eastern third of the continent, uh, we call Tornado Alley because that's that's where those twisters would occur, would be to, to kind of run in the north-south way. Um, and in fact, my grandparents were almost killed by a tornado that, that rolled through their neighborhood outside of Chicago when I was a little kid. The, uh, the roof on the, the building across the street was thrown into their apartment building and uh, the, the, the tar off that roof was thrown through their plate glass windows and tar was stuck in the carpeting in their, in their apartment. And fortunately, they were back in the apartment and they were, they were safe. Um, but so we were, as, as I say, that was always a north-south storm. Those things now run west to east. They have completely changed track. It is so strange. So very, the, the, the number of storms that occur in the northern tier has dropped dramatically. And in recent, the, the past decade, we've seen many more tornadoes that flow from Missouri, Mississippi, Alabama, um, into the Carolina, to Georgia and the Carolinas. They have really destructive storms. This winter, again, um, a number of people died in, in the south in an area that almost with the you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, didn't have these storms at all. So we're, we're watching geologic changes occur in our lifetime. And those, those environmental emergencies, I hope, are a, a clarion call to, to wake people up and realize we've, we've, we're having impacts now. Uh, we need to have some, uh, some changes now. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. But with the work that you've done and all that all that you've seen in in your life, when we're thinking about this post disaster management, whether we're thinking about coronavirus nineteen or Hurricane Sandy or a volcano or an earthquake, are there examples of policy and legislation that you found that favours the environments to bounce back? So if we're thinking about opportunities for change, and you've just mentioned a couple there, do we reconsider where we put houses and power stations? So thinking about those opportunities for change, have you seen any that favour the environment 
whilst also promoting positive th positive things for human interactions. There's a very interesting current example from uh, southern Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam and Thailand have had great success in the last 10 or even 20 years in growing a huge amount of rice to where they became the, the two biggest rice exporting countries in the world. So huge uh, uh, economic benefit. What we all came to realize was that to do this, uh, Vietnam was making some really dramatic changes to the natural world. Um, to be able to produce three rice crops per year required uh, manipulation of the water regime in the lower Mekong River, the Mekong Delta, um, so that it was having negative impacts on the environment. And this is um, definitely measurable by scientists and I think even perhaps observable by everyday people that the groundwater was, was, has been dropping more and more because they're pumping groundwater. And because that, that volume of water is being removed from the environment, the land above it was also, is also sinking. So actually they're, they're dropping their habitat, the, the, the place where they live and the place where they're growing crops of lower and lower relative to sea level. Um, it's having a lot of uh, negative impacts, especially on the ability of the, the uh, groundwater along the coast to stay fresh. Um, seawater is actually pushing into the, to the land. It's a process called salinization where the, the seawater pushes into the groundwater all, along the coast. So um, this has become so dangerous uh, that the government has decreed that uh, they'll stop doing that and make a change and now produce uh, only two crops of rice per year. So implementation of that hasn't been immediate. It's, it's slowly changing over to where farmers are making that change, um, looking for other kinds of crops to grow. And it's actually uh, caused a renewed interest in a historic kind of rice. Um, today, I would say that they, they produce paddy rice, they say, P-A-D-D-Y. Um, you'll, you'll hear uh, Vietnamese people talk about growing paddy rice. Um, they are looking more and more at some natural long grain kinds of rices that, that occurred over in historic times and are uh, more likely to start uh, implementing some of these alternative kinds of rice that don't require all of this manipulation. And if you choose the right strains of rice, um, they, they can be uh, close to as productive, I think perhaps as productive um, as, as those multiple croppings per year. So there's a great example of, a, of people and a government saying, We've gone too far. We've, we've uh, made a change to the environment that the environment cannot tolerate. Um, we need to change course and do something different. And uh, we're starting to, to see some positive impacts from that already today. I think that shows some of the emerging ingenuity that has been a thing that we've picked up on a few times of changes in technology and using technology advancements to change our responses to these kind of well, what we're doing to the environment and then what happens to us as a result. But the fact they're looking back at these like other kinds of rice that people wouldn't have thought about. Because I think one I can think of is also like lionfish in the Caribbean. They're not supposed to be there. So right. they're kind of driving. There is a lot of conservation groups trying to put them onto the market, get a taste for them either within kind of local fishing communities or in like the table market in restaurants. And I remember being on a project um, in Mexico and 
they were doing the lionfish cull. And part of that was to monitor what the lionfish were eating because they're not supposed to be there. So nothing predates them. And then they eat everything. <laughs> and they'd be like, you kind of do the cull. And they're like, yeah, we're going to have a derby at some point this month so that everyone goes and kills lots of lionfish. And we try and get those numbers under control and understand the populations. And it's kind of that human ingenuity of changing our perspective slightly to work with our environment, which I think has been a big theme of this episode, which I love. <laughs> I'm all about that. <laughs> and, I, and I want to say a, a word about uh, traditional ecological knowledge, T-E-K. This has become a whole field in science these days that I think is terribly important for us to recognize that um, this, this looking back uh, historically at, at other kinds of rice is taking advantage of traditional ecological knowledge. Um, sometimes our, our forebears knew how to do it quite well, thank you. And if we'll just uh, pay attention to some of those, um, what, what, what our grandparents, what our great-grandparents knew um, and, and lived that way on the earth, um, there can be a lot for us to learn from that, from that uh, knowledge. I absolutely agree. And I think it's probably something that you come across more than I do in the work that you do in bringing all of these different people and stakeholders together. But a lot of that TEK is out there still. We just have to listen to the right people and support them in ensuring that the most environmentally friendly way in terms of sustainability, but also in terms of what we can get out of it as a population is put forward and sustained as a practice. So yeah, we don't have to reinvent the wheel and we don't have to come up with super duper brand new technologies it is sometimes about listening to other people. And I think that is something that sometimes can go amiss, especially Hannah, you may have a different opinion, but in a PhD world, just so focused on your study that sometimes I think the wider view can be a little bit amiss. I, yeah, no, I agree with that. And maybe Matthew, you come across this sometimes when you interact with different groups about kind of people do get so focused on where they're working. And you said yourself, you're really interested in the bigger picture. I'm quite fortunate in the work that I do and the group I work with, it's all about the bigger picture. Um, I work on a restoration project and we are going to have a whole episode this season on it. Maybe, yeah, focusing on that even more than a whole episode. Who knows? Um, and and then, yeah, it, this restoration project looks at the bigger picture and it's the other stakeholders that are within that that we need to draw knowledge from, like people that have grown the animals that we're restoring all of their lives they truly understand how the ecology of those animals function what's the best practice to grow them further how to move them when to move them things like this and it's drawing on that knowledge that if you don't look at the bigger picture you might quite easily miss i, I don't think that all of our environmental problems can be addressed by historic methods and historic knowledge um, I think, but I think if we're not open to that, we do ourselves a disservice. And I, I think uh, there's that's a, a great field to pursue today. If, if uh, you or some of your listeners should, should consider, um, you know, a, a, an advanced degree in TEK can be a great service to your community um, by un uncovering what people of the north or what what people of rural England or what people of South America or Africa, you know, what what they knew about their environment and, and what. Uh, can be quite informative for how we think about um, how we're how we're living on the earth today. Yeah, you did make me think there that not everything can come from our forebearers because yes, some of the situation we have now has come about because of some of the decisions that we made as a human race prior to this day. 
I, I often I, I love to hear about people going into chemical engineering because there's some there's some uh, pollution problems we have that the chemical engineers could save the planet if, if they can figure out how to break down some of these pollution, especially plastics, and and make use of those. Um, that that could be terribly important to our future survival as a as a race as a species. No, I think you're absolutely right. We've got some friends that are chemical engineers and their minds boggle me in a completely different way. Um, Right. In terms of environmental impacts and when we're thinking about how best to mitigate, improve, monitor, when are there different ways that you address environmental impacts? So we imagine it depends on habitat, sensitivity, vulnerability, area of the world, even people that are involved. Um, but do are there some times where you decide that not decide sorry advise that human intervention is better and are there some times where protecting and monitoring and taking a step back from that environment is better can you give us some examples on what interventions you would recommend depending on the situations I would say that the case of, of pollution is something that requires active intervention. Um, if we've, we've spread our waste in so many habitats that we can't even keep track of the, uh, the, the, the microplastics in the environment that have absorbed uh, uh, persistent organic pollutants and are now just everywhere in the, in the planet, um, that's, that's a pretty scary thing that requires human intervention. Um, I, I think we're, we can't uh, just allow those to occur. I don't know about in the UK. I know that in uh, North America, Canadians and Americans um, have a remarkable amount of, of fire retardant in their bodies. Um, when, when physiologists and physicians do studies of large swaths of, of the North American population, we have a huge amount of fire retardant in our systems. It's just horrifying to think about. And it turns out that has, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it, tur- it turns out that has to do with the, uh, the cigarette smoke, the cigarette industry, with the tobacco industry. Um, in the 1950s, I think it was, maybe 1960s in the United States, um, Congress wanted, to, and local governments wanted to put uh, more and more advice on uh, furniture to say, don't, don't smoke while you're sitting here, or if you're going to go to sleep, be sure to put your cigarette out before you go to sleep, right? Just a kind of a common sense kind of thing. Um, the tobacco industry got very angry about that. They said, well, that's going to make people use our products less. Um, so what if we put a lot of retardant on furniture and on clothing so that if people did go to sleep while they were smoking, there would be less likelihood of a fire? And Congress said, yes, okay, that's fine. Well, it turns out these uh, chemicals that you put on clothing including, it turns out, uh, baby clothing um, is incredibly persistent in the environment. It's next to impossible to to get rid of. And so today, Canadians and Americans have incredible amounts of uh, flame retardant chemicals in their their systems. It's just amazing. It's not unlike uh, DDT. Um, uh, DDT was a huge uh, boon to human health. We were talking about global One Health earlier. Um, after World War II, even during World War II, um, the the existence of malaria and persistence of malaria around the world was huge. 
Um, there are a lot of, of populations in the South Pacific, um, in Southeast Asia, in Africa that were really negatively affected by malaria. And if you spray DDT across the water, you killed off all the mosquitoes and the incidence of malaria dropped dramatically and people saw really great benefits to their health. But it turns out DDT is terrible. <laughs> it has really negative effects on populations. And one of the ways we observed that in the United States, where we, where we distributed a lot of DDT, was that it affected birds. Um, the DDT is, is a persistent bioaccumulator. It, 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 as, as organisms uh, lower and lower in the food chain uh, eat that, it starts to accumulate. And so that by the time you get to the top predators, like raptors, like, like uh, uh, beagles and hawks and ospreys, peregrine falcons, they have really high levels of DDT in their bodies and their eggs were uh, too weak. They would produce eggs that would fail. And so their populations were plummeting. And this is one of the huge success stories in, in ecological restoration in the United States these days, is that we have, the, the, the number of bald eagles these days is just exploding because we got rid of DDT. We've, we've made it illegal to use DDT in the United States. And now there are bald eagles everywhere. They're just thick. You can't, you can't uh, swing a stick without, without coming across bald eagle populations today. You can see bald eagle cams online. Um, so you can watch local, local pairs nest and, and raise up chicks. So uh, when, we, when we recognize those impacts to the environment and we can just get rid of that, um, we can have really positive benefits on our environment. Um, let's see, where is the place we should just let the populace? So, so what's, what's the natural response, right? Is what you're asking about? Yeah, yeah. So as an example with DDT, like it has to be removed because it is a bioaccumulant, right? So whereas, are there any examples of something where we just ring it off, leave it alone, the, if we left it and had no human intervention at all, would, would the environment bounce back be better and would the human population be able to survive without that area being used so much? Um, I'll bring up an example that might be controversial, but I don't think so. And that is, uh, you, you make me think about the Everglades in southern Florida. Um, this is the far, far southern tip of Florida, just, just uh, before you fall off of North America into the sea. Um, there's this really spectacular, unique environment, um, sometimes called a sea of grass. Um, I think it was uh, the, the author, uh, Marjorie Stoneham Douglas, that called it the sea of grass, um, a beautiful uh, freshwater river that flowed out across a limestone cap and raised up this big platform of grass and, and drained into the ocean. Um, a, a huge bird sanctuary, um, great place for crocodiles and alligators and interesting snakes. Um, the, uh, uh, the Florida puma that, that was the big cat that was the, uh, uh, the charismatic megafauna there, the Florida panther, I'm sorry, the Florida panther. Uh, was and is the charismatic megafauna in, of South Florida. Um, but then humans got involved. For, so for a long time, people couldn't, couldn't get there. The, the, the technology to be able to cross this area and, and access it and, and get into it just didn't exist. And people just thought of it as a mosquito swamp and, and didn't want to have anything to do with it. But um, especially real estate developers thought more and more of, of South Florida as a place where people would want to live. And the development there today, of course, is just 
huge, just really amazing. Um, that's that human population lives mostly down the East coast. And this is really, this is visible from space. Um, and it's really dramatic when you look at pictures of South Florida at night, the, the, uh, the Eastern coast is all lit up and, and the rest of the state there is black because it's the Everglades. It's just this pretty, pretty remote, uh, and relatively wild habitat. What's uh, less well known is that north of the Everglades, there's a huge uh, agricultural uh, area, and especially that we grow a lot of sugar there. Sugarcane is is very uh, predominant there, um, and it's where much of the sugar in the United States grows uh, there, and also in uh, South Louisiana, a lot of sugarcane is grown. And uh, so the using of fresh water for agriculture and pouring lots and lots of chemicals onto those crops, which, which now drain into the, into the uh, South Florida habitat, um, have had really dramatic negative effects, uh, really made it uh, much more difficult for those um, that, that area to survive. Um, also uh, very detrimental has been the introduction of uh, exotic animals, um, especially um, Burmese pythons. Um, these massive, massive snakes that are now everywhere in that habitat. Um, so some, some uh, uh, return to nature, I think, could be quite positive there, um, especially if we could control the pythons, which we may or may not be able to do. Um, they're very secretive, uh, very successful uh, uh, reproducing themselves. Um, but certainly to increase the amount of fresh water back to native levels, um, to reduce the amount of agricultural chemicals flowing into that system would have huge benefits for the system um, and might give it a better, a better chance to recover. Um, but like I say, the introduction of, of, uh, in, of uh, exotic animals into the habitat, also some uh, exotic plants like the melaleuca, a tree that has been introduced there, um, are going to make it hard to... to conserve the, the Everglades in the long run. But a, a more natural flow regime would, would go a long way to, uh, to help in that system recover. I think you've picked up a good point there that sometimes, and this is something that we talk about a lot on this podcast, is the zero or hundred, it, it isn't black and white when it comes to managing habitats like this, because either how much we are altering them over the years, or when we introduce something like we just mentioned about the pythons but also the um lionfish that once things like that are in the system it can be very very difficult to get them out because of the fact they're not naturally supposed to be there and there isn't anything that naturally will tend to remove them so in time maybe nature will find a way to get rid of them just like how we're seeing nature uh let us know that we've maybe done too much to the planet in terms of pandemics and things like that but yeah it, it's not a black or white scenario when it comes to managing these habitats as you really highlighted very well there. Um, you, you, you've brought up an ex interesting example with the lionfish um, that, that may also apply to the, uh, the tiger prawn. There's a huge prawn. I think it gets to, you know, grows to be what, what's that? Uh, 20 centimeters, 30 centimeters long. Um, that's been introduced from Thailand in the, in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, just just like the lionfish has been introduced to to that area, um, there's there are actually some there's some potential for economic responses to that. If if you can grow the fishery for those animals and um, re 
restaurateurs and chefs can be convinced that this this could be um, a, a good tasty product on the menu, um, you might actually be able to drive an economic response to that that uh, invasive species um, that could be quite effective. Um, some sometimes uh, you have to. Uh, I've seen this happen in, in uh, with aquatic species before. You got to give it the right name. <laughs> Um, if, if, uh, I think, uh, I don't remember what the original name, but now, now it's called Chilean sea bass. Um, it, it had a, it had a different popular name before and chefs didn't want to have anything to do with it, but when it was called Chilean sea bass, like, exotic. oh, that sounds beautiful and exotic and they're, and they're, and they're delicious. I mean, there's no, there's nothing Just wrong goes with to show it, but you got to give it the right How name. important marketing is. It's all about branding. <laughs> exactly. It, it, exactly. But I, but I think, you know, lionfish, that sounds like a really, yeah, I'd like to eat one of those. And a, a tiger prawn, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a man, <laughs> I eat tiger prawns. So I think to, uh, to those, those things could be quite popular. And they probably, because they're relatively high on the, in their food web, they're probably pretty delicious. I got to say, lionfish aquatic do animals. taste great. They, they do taste pretty great. Because that's part of, yeah, it's so, changing that perspective, as you just said, because even though sometimes, we can grow things that maybe are taking pollutants out of the environment, um, but not accumulating in themselves or animals like these where we've introduced them, they've become a problem, a way of controlling them could be some kind of trophy drive and introducing that economy. It can sometimes be about introducing that to the population and to the people that are going to drive that economy in a way that works with the people to understand what they need and what they want from that economy. Because yeah, I think if you called it the spiky bullfish, like I just did, I can't say I'd eat that. <laughs> we had, we had, this is a, something I was thinking about. We earlier, we were talking about traditional ecological knowledge. Um, one of the reasons that uh, they're the native fish in the Grand Canyon in Arizona and the United States have had such uh, population troubles um, is because they are preyed upon by trout that were introduced for fishing. Um, they were introduced at one part of the system. They, they washed downstream and found a suitable habitat and kind of exploded. And so the, the Western biologists like me, um, sort, sort of were raised in the, in the Western in, um, environmental tradition and, and educational system, said, got to control the trout. How are, what are some ways that we can capture as many trout as possible and euthanize them to, you know, to take them out of the system? Um, uh, because of the numbers, not a, a pleasant activity, um, but probably something that could have really positive impacts on uh, the native fishes there and allow them to rebound. And it turns out that's true. We've, we've seen some positive impacts from those fish control efforts. What we didn't think about at all in the beginning um, was the, the response of Native Americans to doing something like that in the Grand Canyon. For the native uh, tribes that live around the Grand Canyon, it's considered a very sacred place. Uh, the Grand Canyon is their church, it's their pagoda, it's their temple. Um, it's, it's often, for many of them, where where they arose, where their people moved from the third world into the fourth world. Terribly sacred place. And for the white people to come in with their boats and motors and machines and lights at night and talk about just killing lots and lots of the beings was anathema was just really scary and revolting to these people. And they said, you have to stop. You, you, you cannot do that. 
so it was a really interesting clash between sort of the Western approach and traditional ecological knowledge and, and what's socially responsible and environmentally responsible to do in the moment. Um, so we have found some ways to, to control them in other parts of the system um, and uh, also to try to control them with the, how the dam is operated. It turns out temperatures can be really useful in trying to control uh, trout populations. Um, so it, it, it made us stop and rethink about what is the, the best way to, to behave in this environment, because not only do we have a responsibility um, to take care, to, to conserve the habitat, but also to pay attention to the other people who live there and what is what is valuable to them. No, I think that's an excellent point. And I think once again, it it highlights what I think that you do in your role very well of ensuring that everybody's voice is listened to and considered when science and advice is being pulled together. It needs to come from as many voices as possible to ensure that the widest aspect and the best solution is presented as well as everything else. So on that note, I would love to ask you a bit of an introspective question. What to you are some of the skills that are absolutely pivotal to your role? Like what do you think is so important that's got you to the point that you are and like some of the skills that you've gained along the way? Um, I think the diversity of my experience has been really important. Um, it, it's really helped me to um, have greater job satisfaction, very importantly, that, that having, I, I can see where these previous experiences weren't, weren't wasted. I, you know, I did odd things and not every biologist did earlier in their life, but it's been, um, I can see, I can see where I'm employing those in, in my current work. Um, I do, um, although I'm definitely an introvert at heart, um, I do enjoy interacting with people and getting their opinions, taking, uh, the, the, the opinion and the information and the, and the perspectives from other people and try to, to weave those together has been really important. Um, I have uh, some some level of business experience, the uh, the budgeting and and program management skills that I've had to acquire along the way to, to get this done um, have been really useful to me. And um, although it's probably the least favorite part of my job, I recognize that it's uh, necessary, um, and I recognize that it's allowed me to advance um, because I have perspective on, okay, these are the things we want to do. How much is that going to cost? And, and do we have that money or can we find that money? Could we, could we write a grant to get that last portion of the funding? Um, could my agency work together with your agency and your nonprofit and we each chip in some of our time and some of our money to get those things accomplished? That, that um, collaborative spirit, that interest in collaboration and, and honestly, the fun of collaboration um, have been things that have been really helpful to me in, in advancing. Um, and I've, and I've, I think it was so important to have um, a science education. Um, I know that there are some uh, areas of science these days that um, where, where you can get some degrees, at, at least in the United States, I don't know if this is true worldwide, where uh, you get a degree that's called a science degree, um, but you didn't have to necessarily take all of the science and math classes to, to get that degree, I don't, I don't think are advisable. 
or, or at least they're not advisable for, for the kind of job that I have. Um, understanding chemistry, understanding biology, some introduction to physics and statistics has been really useful to me um, in, a, in a very practical way. And it's not that I have to, um, I'm not conducting s- statistical studies every day, but I understand the, the value of a study by because I understand the, the statistical reporting that has been done. Um, and so when I read a paper, I can say, oh, this is this is an author that we ought to invite to, to join us because they did a, a study that's relevant to what we want to do. So the, the diversity of my experience has been really good. I, I recognize that um, it, did, that it did put me a little bit behind on the retirement path. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to be working a little bit longer because <laughs> I, I didn't necessarily build up a lot of savings in, in taking the, the long and winding road. Um, but because I'm enjoying so much what I'm doing today, that's okay. I think that was an amazing summary, really, of that kind of transferable nature that we talk about a lot of kind of the skills that you've built and how they're all so relevant in different ways. And I totally agree with, I think one of the most powerful things is having a baseline understanding of something, but also being able to use that skill to maybe teach yourself other things or at least be able to engage in conversations with people because you have that baseline to understand where they're coming from. And we have covered. I think that's the, I think that's a, that's the case for graduate yeah. school. Um, if, if people have that interest, I think um, have, getting a bachelor's degree is terrific, very important, and, and to have some diversity and exposure to other people and other ways of thinking, a bachelor's degree is great. Um, I think, to, to me, the biggest value of graduate education is, teach, is, is learning how to teach yourself. You have to, it has to become more and more independent. You have to understand where the resources are, and that's evolving. I mean, I'm not sure... I could keep up in graduate school anymore because there, oh, there's so many additional resources where I did I did things the old way. You know, I, I was in the library looking at books, and I'm not sure you do that anymore. But maybe maybe so. You can uh, do. But increasingly, you have to <laughs> increasingly you have to understand where the where the resources are, how to get hold of them, um, how to be interacting with them. Um, that's that's lifelong uh, skills. You'll, you can use that for the rest of your life. So that's, uh, I, I really encourage people if they have that interest, because it's a pain in the neck, right? You don't make a whole lot of money, but, but going to graduate school can be a, a huge benefit to, to you for the rest of your life. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Right, Matthew, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I've absolutely adored this conversation with you today. We have covered some amazing topics, yourself being one of them and what you've done with your life also. We've covered some heavy hitting things when we were talking about natural disasters. But just before we wrap up, have you got anything else that you would like to talk about or add on that we haven't mentioned so far? We, I don't think so. I think we, we, did, we did come back, circle back. And I think I circled back to, the, to those things I was going to mention. But yeah, thank you so much for spending the this morning of your Saturday with us. We really appreciate it, and for all of your knowledge and just being so such a such a wonderful guest. It's a lot of fun to speak with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for chatting to us today, and thanks to everyone for listening to us. And we hope that you have a wild day. Thank you for listening Bye. today. Bye-bye. As always, we have been more about conservation, and you have been awesome. Please leave us a review. We would really appreciate it, and we do read them all. To keep exploring with us, drop us an email or find us on our socials. We're on both Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in our description and on our show notes on the website. If you enjoy our show and do want to support us, we are also on Patreon. 
Just £1 a month or 25p an episode will cover our creation costs and anything above that we donate to charity. And thank you to those who are already supporting us to keep creating. In season two, we will continue to support a charity for the season and we will let you know who they are in the coming weeks. Don't forget to look out for our next episode next Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And if we're not there, just let us know. And remember, step outside and get wild about conservation. Bye. Bye. How do you get wild? Watching wildlife documentaries. Wildflower painting. Diving. Wild swimming. Ocean watching. Rock climbing. Bird watching. Listening to podcasts. Hill walks. Visiting a wildlife charity.